Tis the season, for gift shopping that is, and you've likely noticed that everything for the kids in your life says made in China. But that wasn't always the case. It used to be the other way around. Most of the toys were imported into China from foreign countries. And so there's this real concern about finding, you know, a, a native Chinese toy that can be both modern, um, but also truly Chinese for our kids to play with. That was a big topic of conversation in the 1920s. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, the gifts we buy. But first, the almighty power of the consumer. Remember when people refused to buy Goya food products after Goya's CEO praised Donald Trump? Or when thousands took their business elsewhere when Chick-fil-A donated to anti-LGBTQ groups? Meredith Katz is a professor of sociology at Virginia Commonwealth University. She says those boycotts are part of a larger history of consumer activism that dates all the way back to the Boston Tea Party. And now that social media has taken over the internet, she thinks consumer activism is more powerful than ever. Meredith, how far back does American consumer activism go? So often consumer activism is dated back to uh, the Boston Tea Party and the American Revolution. So the Boston Tea Party was the political protest that really occurred in Boston, of course, right, about taxing tea. They dumped the tea into the harbor. Over 300 chests of tea they dumped into the harbor. And so that is really seen as kind of this first site of consumer activism where they didn't like what was being imposed upon them. And so they decided to take a different course of action. It's really interesting to think that this goes back that far. Mm -hmm. Did Americans or colonists at the time have to learn that this is a concept, this idea of boycotting? I'm not sure they themselves would label it a boycott. I mean, this is the late 1700s, right? And here we are, right, 250-ish years later. And I feel like it's a, it's a term that we have kind of retroactively imposed upon what they did. But I don't think that it is something that they would have said, yes, this is a boycott. And it wasn't a one-off. Years later, at least... Quakers used mm -hmm. the same sort of technique to lead mm -hmm. an effort to boycott goods that had been made by enslaved workers prior mm -hmm. to the Civil War. Correct, yes. And so, and so Quakers, driven a lot by their ideology, which is, I think, a parallel that we can see today by people who we would consider consumer activists, refused to buy products made of slave labor. And that is something that we see people boycotting now for similar purposes, um, whether or not it's, you know, sweatshops or if they are boycotting things that they believe like the farmers are not being paid a fair wage. So again, I think it's important to realize that this is not something that happened in the distant past and stayed there, but really what we have is a trajectory of history spanning over 200 years. After the Quaker boycott, let's say, post-Civil War, mm -hmm. what are some of the bigger movements you saw? You write about, for instance, the 1889 sweatshop movement mm -hmm. led by women. Yeah, so at that point, the National Consumers League had a white label campaign, which is really a precursor to what we would call the anti-sweatshop movement today. And so what they did was they ensured that there was fair labor in making a product and fair wages being paid to the workers on the floor. And then what they would do is they would literally put a white label on the tag. And when the white label was on the tag, then you as the consumer in the store were assured that fair labor and fair wages went into that product. And so you could buy that product with confidence. Did that work? It did. It was extremely successful in part for two reasons. One, they had their act together and they, they did their research and it was a widespread campaign. And the second reason was that women tend to be the primary consumers at that time and women were also the ones that were leading this movement. And so I feel like the solidarity that occurred between them there was really helpful in advancing their cause. 
Years later, you point out that African Americans also played a prominent role in consumer activism with the Don't Buy Where You Can't Work movement. What was that? So that was in the 1930s in Chicago. That was a movement really by African Americans themselves to say that we are not going to buy things, even if you were located in our neighborhood, if you are not going to hire us. So the flip side of this, right, is that when people boycott, they also buy cot. While they weren't working or they were not purchasing, therefore, at certain stores, they went to Black-owned businesses. And so that became a thing, right? So they were not employable at these places, and so they would not patronize them. And so conversely, they were going to support Black-owned businesses. Oh, so it bolstered the community. Yes, yes. And that's and that's one of the things about consumer activism. It's kind of two sides of the same coin because sometimes when you're not shopping somewhere, you still have to shop somewhere else. And so by doing that, right, you're redirecting your money to a different place that maybe upholds your values or supports your community or in this case would even hire you. There's another kind of consumer expression that you write emerged after World War II. What was that? How were people using purchasing to express themselves? Right. So after World War II, this is where, again, we see the rise of choice. We now have mass manufacturing. We have a plethora of options that people didn't previously have. That's sometimes when we start to see the rise of people being able to express who they are through their consumer choices and habits. So for instance, your style of dress, where you purchase, now you have a lot of choices. They're increasing availability for consumers to make those choices that reflect either who they want to be or who they want to present themselves as. In more recent times, what brands have you noticed have been on the receiving end of maybe wide-scale consumer boycotts? Right. There has been a boycott recently against the Goya products, the um, Hispanic food products, because the owner of Goya said that Trump was a blessing. There also similarly, I think the Trump and everything surrounding him really sparked a lot of boycotts, including Publix, because a member of the Publix family recently donated to the rally right before the January 6th insurrection. Initially with Starbucks, there was some opposition because they did not want any of their employees during the Black Lives Matter movement to wear any signage or any pins or anything signifying their support. They later reversed that due to consumer and public pressure. You know, you mentioned the protests over Donald Trump goods when he was president. Mm -hmm. I remember a group of people rushed to boycott Trump products from wine to hotels and steaks and even his daughter's line of clothing. But also, Trump supporters rushed in to buy those very same goods. Yes. And that's exactly what happens, right? So especially in something that is so politically charged as Donald Trump, right, you have groups of people boycotting something for the same reason that you have other groups of people boycotting or intentionally purchasing, right? So oh, right. they want to show their support for Donald Trump. You know, they go to the Trump winery or they go to Trump Tower or they go buy Ivanka Trump's clothing line at the store. And so that's what we see. We see that often when we have a boycott for one reason, there's people on the other side that are going to support those people with their dollars because they want to show that they, too, agree with their ideology or they don't want them to suffer so much from the boycott of others. We're also right in the middle of that holiday period where we have a lot of consumer days that have been designated recently. So online, you've got Amazon Singles Day, Cyber Monday, Black Friday. Do you see much consumer backlash to that? Right. So online sales are up 10% from last year. 
and huh. they continue to rise. So it's kind of this revenge spending is a way that I've heard it called. Um, so during COVID, maybe people, you know, bought things initially and then it kind of tapered off. So even though we're seeing inflation, we're still seeing, right, a really high level of consumer spending. And while there's all those examples, there's also other ones where people are saying no, right? Like REI famously has on Black Friday opt outside and they close all of their stores. Adbusters, which is a nonprofit out of Canada, actually, has deemed the Friday after Thanksgiving by nothing day since it's notoriously the largest shopping day of the year before Cyber Monday came along. So I do think that there are these movements of people that are resisting this hyper-consumerism and just this idea to buy, buy, buy. Has the use of buying power been much more pronounced by Americans through the years than Europeans? Yes, in part because we are such a consumer-driven society. While these other societies, European societies, are, you know, also capitalist societies and also, you know, have interest in consumer goods, right? The scale at which Americans spend is like none other. And conversely, the scale at which we dispose of our items is like none other. And so in part, that really has created a space for consumer activism to flourish in the U.S. Do you think that boycotting is still popular? Do you think most people still think it's an effective tool for achieving ethical ends? I do. I think boycotting, if you were to ask a researcher, is something that's really hard to measure. So if you would say, how often do you boycott Chick-fil-A? Well, I don't know because I just don't go to Chick-fil-A, right? And so I think it's a really hard concept to quantify, but there actually is some recent research out that shows that 63% of Americans believe it's effective. And so I do think there is a way in which people understand that where they spend their money matters. What about you? Do you have your own form of consumer activism or expression during the holiday period? That's a great question. I try to definitely not purchase from certain places. I do not shop at Amazon, for example, because I just believe Jeff Bezos has too much money and there's other ways that I can redirect my spending elsewhere in my local economy. I do not like to have a lot of stuff, even though I have a small child, so that's kind of hard. So I really try to ask myself, like, will I need this, right? Is this just the temporary high of maybe opening this as a gift or seeing somebody open this as a gift? Or is this something that's going to end up in a donation pile in a couple of months? I know we live in a consumer society and there's so many options and sometimes things feel kind of insurmountable in terms of corporate power, but you can make different choices. And I think it's also important to realize that you don't have to make all the different choices at once. <laughs> Just start with one thing, right? Say, I want to buy, you know, coffee from a farmer that I know was paid a fair wage. And those small things really do collectively add up. Meredith Katz, this is inspirational. Thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you. Meredith Katz is a sociology professor at Virginia Commonwealth University. Coming up next, how Chinese toys over the years have impacted the identities of Chinese children. Whatever our age, we remember the toys we grew up playing with. Susan Fernzebner is a professor of history at the University of Mary Washington. She says toys are also a matter of personal and national identity. For example, there was a period in China in the 1920s when the nation realized its children were playing with mostly foreign toys, and they quickly got to work on making toys that reflected their own children. 
Susan, when did you first start thinking about childhood toys and the way children play with toys really being a reflection of their identity, even their national identity? I think it was the first time I saw this film entitled Playthings. Uh, It was one of several Chinese films I was watching from the 1930s. And I was just really uh, struck by this image of toys themselves in this film. Uh, the film is about a a woman who's a handicraft toy maker in village China, and she goes through a whole series of trials and tribulations um, in addition to struggling to get her handicraft toys, you know, to compete with imported factory toys. She also, you know, has to confront us, do the other villagers, um, you know, the, the uh, militarists of the time and Japan invading and other things. But I was just really struck by the beauty of the toys she made and the attention the directors were paying to the actual material process of her making those toys and sharing them, you know, with um, not only her fellow villagers, but the audience in the theater. Was it ironic that it should be a woman toy maker? I usually picture male toy makers in popular culture. You know, it's funny. It didn't strike me as such, I think, because it was presenting it as um, a home industry. It was something that she was making in the home and then turning over to these male street peddlers to sell. So it was in some ways a really sort of traditional uh, process of of manufacture. The woman in the home doing this as a sideline industry, and then you have these male peddlers, uh, you know, they're fairly poor fellows, you know, putting them on a stick and hanging them all. And that was beautiful to see too. And they were rallying around her, um, you know, and really enjoying her art and then going out and making their own living through it too. Describe some of her creations, things that fascinated you. Oh, they're beautiful. They were all of these wooden hand-painted toys, many of which had some kind of a a mechanical design too with strings and pulleys and the like. There's a great scene towards the beginning of the film where there is a, a local street merchant and uh, there's lots of children in the beginning of this film. And, uh, you know, he's, he's a bit of a, of a bully, of a friendly kind too, nothing too scary. But, but he and the kids get into a bit of a skirmish. And so um, the children are making these little toys where, or, or, or things where they can shoot, you know, shoot things at him, little pea shooters and the like at, at, this, at, this, at this merchant, the street merchant. And so the toy maker sees this and is inspired. And so she goes back to her home shop and she puts together this wooden doll that's this street merchant. And he's this rotund fellow with um, a mask and this doll that she creates with a mask that he's holding up in front of his face, which is exactly what the street merchant was doing to dodge the things that the kids were flinging at him. (laughs) And so if you pull a string, as I recall, it's been a little while since I've seen the film, but if you pull a string, you know, the mask will come up over this this doll. And and the film's beautiful because it shows these interspersed scenes of what was happening out on the street with the fellow putting putting something up to block his face and and dodge the the kids and then the um, the doll itself working just like him. So you can see life reflected in the toy. It was beautiful. What was the moral point of the film? So we start with this craftswoman, this woman who was really skilled at making toys and not mass producing them. But she comes eventually to warn others, mass production is everywhere. Foreign import toys are flooding our markets. Yeah, it's it's a complex and interesting film, but I think, you know, what she's trying to do is rally her fellow Chinese people to stand up for the nation. And in a way, she's lost in the course of that call. So you see this celebration of the handicrafts that she's doing and the toys that she's making, these folk toys, really. Um, but in the end, what we're going to see is that there's also, in a sense, this celebration, too, of industrially produced toys. So we'll also see scenes where you'll see dolls being put together in factories. You'll see their literally their heads rolling and their eyes being made and, and the arms put together with what we probably think of as these sort of modern style dolls, you know, these mass manufactured dolls. And in the film, what we're going to see is that it's going to be her son who's going to go on to take over that kind of industry. And that's a vision maybe of a modern China going forward. So the torch is being passed in a sense, although I think there's also some nostalgia and maybe a sense of 
a little bit of a sense of loss there too um, in the, that's embedded in those folk toys as well as this character. What did you come across in terms of how much toys are infused with our national identity, whether we know it or not, as we're little ones playing with them? I think we think they are. I don't know if they really are or not because they circulate so much. And in the end, I think toys are exactly what kids want to make of them, which is usually not at all what their parents or other adults and especially marketers think they're going to do with them or make of them. But when I look at it historically, I see a lot of adults talking about, you know, uh, how toys correspond to a national character, especially if you look at the 19 teens and 20s. So in China, people were talking about with an economy in China in the teens and 20s not doing so well, that Chinese toys weren't good enough and that they had to be made better. And what did that mean? Well, you know, if they're all made out of wood and straw and bamboo, then we need to find a way to actually, you know, make toys that are more like the ones we're importing, which are, you know, machine-made toys and factory-made toys. Uh, like those cool warships coming out of Germany, you know, um, for kids to play with. Although sometimes those are critiqued, too, for being too complicated. Were there other countries they also characterized by the kinds of toys that were being imported from there? Yeah, there's there's one text I've seen that talks about it and actually does break it down into different, you know, different countries. Germany is put at the forefront because it's having the most success and seems to have the longest history, you know, of an industry of toy making because, you know, it's so developed industrially in making toys, but also has a great tradition of craft and making toys. France is described as having beautiful toys that are clever, but maybe more fragile than German toys. Um, and then China uh, is usually the main focus still of these conversations, you know, and blame for toys that are somehow of inferior manufacture, uh, and also that they need to improve their educational value. This was really, I think, the concern in the teens and 20s, because there was also a concern with improving China's educational system and, uh, you know, and, and strengthening that for the future and for China's next generation. It's so interesting because now we know China has produced maybe 90% of American-made toys. They're produced in China, shipped back over here. But that wasn't always the case. And it's so interesting that back in the 20s and 30s, China was urging itself to ramp up in industrial production of toys. Yeah, it's really interesting because if anything, it was almost the opposite problem back then. Everyone was concerned about all the toys that were being imported into China. And what are we going to do if our children are playing with these foreign toys? And so there's this real concern about finding, you know, a, a native Chinese toy that can be both modern, um, but also truly Chinese for our kids to play with. That was a big topic of conversation in the 1920s. What did they settle on as modern but Chinese? You know, there isn't one individual toy that marked that, but it's more of a, uh, you know, a set of characteristics of toys. You know, how do we create something that is, um, you know, uh, I think um, educational um, and at the same time safe for them to play with? And, and one thing that was advocated by many educators at this time was, uh, interestingly, a return to some of those handicraft toys in a way that, that I was talking about in relation to the film, except bringing that into um, no longer, it's, about, it's no longer about production of those things or having your kids produce them. Um, it's not about the toy maker, you know, making them to sell to your kids. Um, but instead, it's about moms and their kids at home making them together. Uh, in the 1930s especially, and this is part of pedagogy and education. So kids and parents and teachers, you know, making their own toys out of bamboo and straw and learning from them. That's interesting because you think of the Waldorf educational principle of parents and children making things out of yarn and natural goods, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think there's a lot of cross-conversation going on the time at the same time between American educators and psychologists and Chinese specialists in those same fields, too. So I don't think that's an accident. I mean, one of the things that I think is really interesting about it is the way it relates to, you know, um, how the family is also changing in this time in the 20s and 30s. So, you know, you have, I think, um, this real celebration of a new kind of middle-class family and a new kind of nuclear family in the 1930s. And it's all about, you know, the household and play and the mother and her children. Um, at least that's what some of these toy 
you know, toy writers are talking about. It's interesting. You grew up with your mother as a daycare provider. Tell me about what sort of toys you grew up with that you remember and whether you think that was influenced by who your parents were. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, You know, I grew up with a whole range of toys. My father was born in Germany in a small village in the Alps um, way back when in the 1930s. And so his toys, a lot of those were actually handmade. And I have pictures of him as just this little toddler himself, you know, playing with these wooden toys, um, you know, and little spools and blocks and things that his father, who was a gardener and an artisan, I think made for him. Um, the ways in which we can think about um, those meanings being handed down, both from adults to kids, um, but then, you know, across generations. I think that's that's really important. What I see is that adults are sort of pinning their their whole future on it. What do you mean by the adults pinning their future on these toys? Yeah, I think what you're seeing is is that you have these these elites actually writing this, creating these books teaching people how to create these dolls with their kids and promising them that if they engage in this kind of activity, if they make toys with their kids, they're going to help build a stronger China. And so I'm really interested in how that activity, making toys with your kids, can be seen as a patriotic thing to do, as a, as a you know, as a build the stronger nation activity. So it was both a kind of buy China first, right. but also a spend quality time and nostalgically make these beautiful artisanal toys that we've always known have been made here. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we frame it as beautiful artisanal toys because we're looking back you know, through a looking glass of time and that they're almost museum quality for us today. But I think at the time back then, what they saw was these things are, you know, made of just simple materials and they're not as shiny and new or as advanced as those factory-made toys. But we need to remember that they're Chinese toys and that they do have quality. And if we make them right, they can help us compete. And so bamboo and straw can actually be educationally useful and can help us make stronger kids. And stronger kids are our most important national good. That was the message back then. Susan Fern Zebner is a professor of history at the University of Mary Washington. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. For months, companies and experts have been suggesting we hurry up and buy our Christmas gifts. Well, it's almost Judgment Day. Will they arrive in time? Erica Marciak is a professor of supply chain management at Old Dominion University. She says the pandemic is one thing, but our supply chain issues are another. We're importing almost everything these days, and it takes time for things to travel by land, sea, and air to get to our front stoop. Erica, we've all been warned to buy extra early this year due to supply disruptions, but how bad is it? Are late shoppers in trouble, do you think, at this point in the season? Well, I think that late shoppers are always going to have some sorts of trouble simply because of the procrastination but they should be able to still get items. It may not be their first choice, but I always say if you can be more creative, then you'll be more satisfied. We've all seen the images of container ships waiting at sea, especially in California, to offload goods. Why exactly did that happen? We get that there's a backlog. We get that it's hard to solve. What led to it? I would say COVID exacerbated a problem that we already had in that we don't make a lot of stuff in the United States anymore. And so we buy a lot of items that have to be imported. And that's been increasing over the past decades. Do you mean it increased even during the two-year pandemic? So initially, when COVID hit, we stopped purchasing things because I think there was a lot of economic uncertainty. 
But at the same time, once we got over that initial gap in purchasing, we have just been buying on steroids since then. For example, in the past, let's say, year, buying and spending is 20% more than ever. I totally get that. But I also feel like this is going to be super temporary and will even out. Is that what you and others in the supply chain economics field believe? Even out is probably not what I would use. The COVID pandemic has certainly laid bare some of the problems that we have in the supply chain system. What my hope is that our infrastructure investments are going to be able to address those gaps moving forward so that even if we continue to purchase more things from elsewhere, we'll have a more robust system to do that. But help me understand our infrastructure problem. Isn't it just that temporarily we've got dozens of ships waiting with lots of goods that need to get on trucks and go across the country? Eventually, that's going to solve itself, right? So what's happened over time is, particularly with COVID, the rest of the world, which made most of our stuff, um, had to stop making our stuff for a while. They had economic shutdowns. They had the areas that were making things for us weren't able to make things for us for a while. Mostly China or China and a lot of other places. China and a lot of other places, but mostly okay. Asia. So when that initially happened, we were running short on things. Part of that was also because we changed our behavior patterns. Even the toilet paper scandals of last year where we weren't actually missing toilet paper overall. We were just missing the kind of toilet paper that we used at home. Oh, you mean we had an abundance of cheap, thin toilet paper meant for work? Yes, we did. But the rest of us wanted comfy, (laughs) thick, expensive toilet paper? Yes, or different sizing. Part of that was our changing behavior and consumption patterns. You suddenly were home and said, well, my goodness, I can't spend my money doing something fun outside, so let me spend my money doing getting something fun for home. So combined with that supply problem, meaning the rest of the world wasn't, wasn't able to make stuff for a while, and the United States is just still continuing to buy more and more and more, those things we're buying have to come in to this country. And they come in through very small doors, small gateways, like a port. And so if we think about a port, sort of like a tunnel or a gate, I might have a large amount of things on one side that needs to get through this tiny little doorway, this tiny little gateway. Our ports, for example, on the west coast of the United States in Los Angeles or Long Beach, they process nearly 40% of what's coming into the United States from Asia in particular. And if they're getting flooded with more and more and more goods, the doorway hasn't gotten any bigger. It just means there's more stuff on the other side that needs to get through. So why haven't more workers with more trucks and more offloading gear simply ramped it up, worked around the clock, and worked through the backlog? What's preventing that? Some of that is labor shortages. We've been experiencing labor shortages throughout all sorts of jobs, and supply chain jobs are one of those. Just because, for example, uh, the port of Long Beach or Los Angeles says, we're going to be open 24 hours a day. Just because they agree to be open 24 hours a day doesn't necessarily mean that the truckers are willing to arrive at 2 o'clock in the morning or 4 o'clock in the morning or 10 o'clock at night. Do you think that we're poised for sort of a moonshot of transportation upgrade in the sense that we once went coast to coast with railroad building? We had the great building of the network of superhighways across America. We had going to the moon. Do you think we're on the brink of needing something akin to that in terms of our national infrastructure? I certainly think we could use it, and I hope that it is arriving. 
Where do we need it? Unfortunately, we need it across all sorts of our transportation infrastructure. We need it in terms of our water, our ports. We need it in terms of our railroads. We need it in terms of our trucking. We need it in terms of our road investments. I live in a small town where what used to be a main street, just a regular main street, now has trucks on it that go from the port at one end of town to a port at another end of town. And that street gets incredibly congested, but it's also constrained because it has houses on either sides. And so the only way to fix that congestion would be to either take away some of the housing or build a rather expensive bridge structure over it. That main street used to work a long time ago, but now there are more trucks on it and it doesn't work. And so we need those sorts of investments into building capacity for our transportation modes. You know, business people are so innovative and imaginative. Do you think there may be lasting and unexpected consequences of the supply chain logjam that there will be new ways of doing business that stick after people find workarounds? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, we're seeing some of them already. When everything's working fine, you don't think of new ways to do stuff because everything's working fine. You start to get creative when things aren't working the way you want them to. So for example, Ford, Ford manufactures vehicles, cars. It didn't previously manufacture its own semiconductor chips. Now with the chip shortages, they just announced a um, recent deal where they're going to start making their own because they could not rely on getting them from somewhere else. Other things is, are that consumers and especially small and mid-size companies, they don't have the deep pockets of the large retailers. And so they're coming up with different ways of sourcing. Maybe instead of bringing something in over from Asia, via a, a rather time-consuming supply chain, I'm going to look for something that might be sourced closer to home in my region or nearby, something that would be able to substitute, but I don't have to concern myself with whether or not it's going to be delayed. So you think the U.S. has already started manufacturing more goods or parts domestically, right? I wouldn't say they're already doing it. I would say yeah. that COVID has provided an incentive to do so. When it comes to actual holiday shopping, what are some of the goods that you've heard are most affected by the backlog? I mean, is it cars, toys, clothing? Predominantly holiday goods that are impacted. Anything related to chips, computer chips, gaming consoles, right. laptops, phones, those sorts of things. Um, toys as well, mainly because most of those are made abroad and we're importing them. Books, uh, when COVID hit, we started buying more books, physical hard copy books, and a lot of those aren't printed here. A lot of the clothing, accessories, and sportswear that are made, particularly in Asia, are going to run into some challenges. Um, you'll still find it, but it may not be the exact brand or model that you want. Surprisingly, uh, alcohol, even if it's locally made, uh, it depends on other things. Like we might make the wine in Virginia, but the bottle that we're putting it in may not be from Virginia. It may be from right. elsewhere. What about you? Did even you worry a little bit when you heard there was going to be this port backup and maybe scarcity of toys or electronics this year? I have a 13-year-old son who might like <laughs> a certain game or a console. And I might say, well, we're not going to find that one this year at a price that I'm willing to pay. So let's see what else we can come up with as a substitute. I forgot about that. Prices shot through the roof on a lot of these toys. Very much so. And not just on toys, <laughs> just about everything. Yeah. <laughs> now, I will say about inflation, some of the large companies have somewhat deeper pockets, and they are able to subsidize some of those costs. In particular, Target and Walmart have come out recently saying that they're not going to raise their prices as much as inflation would indicate they should. Are you mostly done with your Christmas shopping? You're an early shopper, right? 
Normally, yes. I have the majority of the small things done. And the rest of it, I'm actually taking a moment to reassess whether or not I really need it. Because I think yeah. one of the things we'll, that will come out of this is some possible changes to our consumption habits. I'm hoping that we spend a little less. I'm hoping that we spend on local or regional products. And I'm hoping that we decide to spend a little more on experiences versus products themselves. Erica Marciak, thank you for sharing your insights with me on With Good Reason. Thank you very much for having me. Erica Marciak is an associate professor of supply chain management at Old Dominion University. My next guest has been testing toys for safety. Stefan Duma is an engineering professor at Virginia Tech. From the 1990s to the early 2000s, he conducted a long-term research project for the military, looking at ways to prevent face and eye injuries. After publishing his findings, he started to get calls from popular toy companies. Ever since, Stefan Duma has helped toy companies like Nerf and Hasbro ensure their toys are safe for children. Stefan, you and your team are testing the safety of toys, especially for eye injuries. What started you off on toys? For the military, we did a lot of work looking at eye injuries for soldiers relative to blast loading and fragments coming at them. So we developed the skills and the, the science behind understanding eye injuries at a very detailed level. And then we got a call from some of the companies asking questions about how do we know if our toys are going to be safe for kids? How do we measure this? How do we put science engineering behind the toy design? Because at that point, toys and the little toy blaster guns and the Nerf darts and the little BBs, all of those became immensely popular. And so we were able to help them design these to reduce injury risk. Were you surprised when you got your first call from a toy company saying, hey, could you test this for us? I was surprised. You know, we get a <laughs> lot of it? calls yeah. from different people. <laughs> the first big company was Hasbro, and they do a lot of great research on all their products. And so we've been able to work with them closely. They were interested in how to quantify risk for the little Nerf darts, eye injury risk, and, and the Nerf darts and all the competitor darts, and, and really working with all of the industry to set standards based on the technology we had developed. It's so interesting. It was Hasbro and Nerf, because when I think of Nerf, I immediately think nobody's going to get hurt or break the lamps. It's such a strong brand. They do a great job of very carefully designing their products and working to make sure they're as safe as possible. And there's a whole other side of that equation, which is now there's fake Nerf darts and what we call knockoff darts, and they're not as safe. And so we've done a lot of analysis looking at those. And so we encourage parents, make sure you buy the Nerf branded product because the knockoffs have much higher, almost three times higher risk of eye injury for kids. They're not built as carefully as the Nerf products are. What are some differences, let's say, between Nerf darts that are safer and others that are less safe? The basic thing is the Nerf darts are a little softer. And so the tip of the Nerf dart is designed to deform, whereas the knockoff ones are much more stiff. And so when it hits the eye, it's a higher force and higher eye injury risk. And it's amazing. If you go onto Amazon and type in Nerf dart, you're going to get pages and pages of knockoff darts. So parents really have to be careful to make sure they're buying the Nerf products because I can tell you those are the ones that are designed better. Have you found that the risk of injury from toys has risen because of Amazon? Well, I don't. I, I couldn't say that, but I can say that there's a clear, definite three times increase in risk with the knockoff darts. And, okay. you know, it's important that we get that message out because especially this time of year when people are looking at holiday shopping and, you know, these are very, very popular toys. And so we want to make sure the kids have the safest possible products. What about the Nerf sword? What did you find with that? And how could a Nerf sword possibly be injurious, right? Well, the, the Nerf swords, and there's a lot of different types. Again, a great deal of engineering and background research went into those. Uh, we did a lot of research with little kid volunteers. The question was, well, how fast does a kid swing? 
And how fast does that vary between boys and girls and ages? So we mapped all that data so we can quantify exactly how old a kid is, whether they're a boy or a girl, how fast they swing, and what's the risk of getting hit in the head and then possibly having a concussion. So that was the the background engineering. And then that led to the, the very soft swords, and they're very deformable. So even if you were accidentally to get hit in the head with them, they're very force-limiting and very low risk of injury. Your children are older now, but you used them for years, and I'm sure they were thrilled to be doing it, to watch them in the lab as they played and maybe record them on video to measure force and stroke, right? Right. They've been wonderful participants. It's important to note that we do have IRB approval for all these different things that we do because it's they're human subjects, so we're very careful to make sure we do that. But it's been fun, and they've loved it because they get to see all the the science and engineering that goes into these toys. And and they're very popular toys. What kind of toys have you tested that are really in the most dangerous category? Well, there's a big jump when you start to talk about things like BB guns and paintball guns. Right. Those are, those are extremely high, basically 100% guaranteed eye injury, severe eye injury, if you get hit with one of those in your eye. So we, we do the range of sports from the very safe Nerf darts to the very unsafe paintball. And I love paintball. I like playing that. But that's a that's an activity where you have to be very, very careful and you have to wear, you know, full face protection to make sure you, you minimize the risk of eye injuries. Because if you don't and one of those objects hits you in your eye, it's almost 100% you'll lose your eye. I personally love drones and remote helicopter toys. And I've bought my share of those but you have found that they are also some of the more dangerous toys in the market. That surprises me. This is something that's very, very alarming. People don't understand that the drones that are flying around that you attach cameras to, if they contact you, they are going to hurt and they are going to cut your skin and you've got to be very, very careful. Now, on the lower end, you have the smaller foam-based drones. One of the popular brands is Airhog. And again, if you go to Target or Walmart, there's a whole aisle of these types of devices. They're meant to be flown inside your house. So those are what we really worry about because those are the ones that kids are going to be flying around each other. They're actually going to fly it into themselves or their parents or their siblings. And so we do a lot of work on how do you design those blades so that when it when it does run into a kid, it's not going to cut them up. I understand you're also working with the FAA on some guidelines for those drones you just talked about. Right. We have a great partnership with the FAA, and our drone group here is a wonderful group of researchers. We have about 40 people working in drone delivery. Uh, we're actually lucky here at Virginia Tech. We have the first consumer drone delivery in the country, and it's active right now. They're flying drones, delivering coffee and snacks and candy. So what we want to do is make sure that that <laughs> drone, if there ever was an accident and maybe it loses power or wind or something, that if it does come down and hit somebody, we want to make sure that that's not a dangerous injury. I know there is that program for the drone delivery at Virginia Tech, and you mentioned the coffee, snacks, lunch, that kind of thing. Is that a very limited experiment, or are there drones everywhere in Blacksburg? It's fairly limited because we have an airport in the middle of Blacksburg, so they can't get near that. And they've been doing this for a long time. And it's very successful. It's every day. They have about 20 different drones that take off and land. And people that have this system and enjoy the delivery really like it. It's wonderfully easy to have things land right in your front yard. Is it as good as, let's say, Uber Eats? Well, it's quicker. Yeah. And it's a better energy footprint. That's one of the driving things in terms of the environment. This is a less gas. These are all electric. And they're quicker and easier to get to your house than having to drive. How pricey are they right now? All the delivery that Wing is doing is free, so they're not charging the consumers. So that makes everyone very happy, <laughs> so yeah. you can imagine. <laughs> Long term, you know, they're looking at being competitive with, like, the prices of, of Uber. The cost can be dramatically less because they can fly. They don't need a driver. They don't need an automobile. Uh, the drones can get to people's houses quicker. They can go you know, basically line of sight. They don't have to follow the roads. There's not congestion. So the potential for these to be very effective and cost-efficient and better for the environment is very, very positive. I know we're getting off track here, but it does scare me what people can also do with drones. I mean, cluttering up the airspace and possibly using them for nefarious reasons, right? I agree with you. There's absolutely a lot of concern, and there's a lot 
I mean, just a tremendous amount of research going on in that space. I mentioned we have about 40 active researchers just working on drones and drone safety and drone technology. It is a booming business. It's only going to get bigger. And that's why we have to work with the FAA and make sure we have the right policies and the right procedures so that we can do this safely. But it is a very dynamic time, and we want to make sure we have these right policies so that we can keep everyone as safe as possible. What are some red flags that you think parents who are now busy shopping for toys for Christmas ought to be aware of from your research? One of the biggest is these higher-functioning drones. We're, we're very concerned because there's such a dramatic proliferation of drones. They're almost everywhere. Uh, and we want to make sure that people understand there's training, there's ways to handle these safely. And if you do that, you'll be fine. But they're not simple toys. Stefan Duma is the Harry C. Wyatt Professor of Engineering at Virginia Tech. And he's director of Virginia Tech's Institute for Critical Technology and Applied Sciences. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, a National Cancer Institute designated cancer center researching and developing the treatments of tomorrow. UVAHealth.com. Virginia Humanities has a new paid fellowship opportunity for humanities scholars affiliated with Virginia's historically black colleges and universities. Selected candidates will be funded through a grant from the Dominion Energy Charitable Foundation. Applications are due by January 7. Please go to virginiahumanities.org. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are interns. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>